0: Everybody has something to offer. Everybody has something to give. So why not learn the story? That's one of the most beautiful things I learned while I was incarcerated. Learn the next person's story. Everybody have one to tell.
1: From Furman University's Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities, I'm Caroline Ring, and this is another Upstate Anecdote. Previously on the Upstate Anecdote Society, Jared Hanley introduced us to Soteria, a community development corporation in Greenville, South Carolina, focused on serving and empowering formerly incarcerated men and their transitional journeys after prison. Prior to coronavirus shutdowns, Mike Winiski, Executive Director for the Center of Engaged Learning at the Shai Institute, and Lamont Thomas, Greenville Police Department, interviewed six men participating in Soteria's ministry. Today, We are returning to these interviews to dive deeper into each of the conversations and to listen to the personal experiences of these men.
2: We're human beings, we need to throw them away. We're well, human beings, we gotta be retooled. We gotta, you know, we got families, we got goals, we got, you know, a life to live. So don't limit me. Don't put me in a box okay, you did your time, but that's it. we are not gonna do anymore. That's crazy. That's like throwing people away like that. That's wrong.
1: This is Mike. Mike is a biking enthusiast who describes himself as an intellectual with an outgoing and loving personality. Having been in and out of Soteria for 10 years, Mike begins his story with a reflection of what his time in prison was really like.
3: What
2: was it like? Well, you've got a forced structure. Here on the outside, you don't have forced structure. You know, you've know, got a set structure, but not a forced structure. They tell you what to do. They, may, they make decisions for you. And the decisions that they make are not, are not helping you. They're hurting you. They tell you what to do, what not to do. They tell you when to get up. They tell you when you when lights out. They tell you when you can eat, when you can't eat. They'll tell you when you work, when you can't work. Depending on who you're with, sometimes you may you mate well with other people, with other men. Sometimes you don't. That makes things much more challenging. I got to the point where I got I was frustrated. In the last three and a half years of my time, I was frustrated. Not just so much the structure, but so much as what I couldn't do. Well now you tell me what I can do. I've had it stuck down my throat for so long. Please tell me what I can do now. And I understand how these guys are, they've been told what they can't do and now we don't they to tell us, okay, we know you can't do this, but tell me what I can do now. Help me. Don't hurt me. Help me.
1: Mike's frustrations of only being told what he can't do continue to evolve outside of this forced structure prison environment. When detailing his release process, Mike highlights how his current life choices are still limited by a major barrier faced by men and women when leaving the prison system. Acquiring government-issued identification.
2: When people come out of incarceration, they need an ID. They need need help. They need ID. They need social security guards. These are the the basics, and they have a hard time getting the basics. And to some of us, okay, it's frustrating we find other than just to get a simple ID, you have to have a lot of patients to get it. That's frustrating because we need an ID. We need. We don't want to have a state ID, a state a Department of Corrections ID, but we want something that says who we are. By law, we're supposed to have it. So why do you make it so hard for us to get? If you don't have a Social Security card, number one. Number two, if you don't have a, a, something with a written address on it, that makes it hard, too. So now you got to have people say, well, we're going to get you a note. We're going to write you a note saying, to whom am they concerned? You reside here. Okay? we if they ask you about a birth certificate. Okay, I'm not from around here. How do I get a birth certificate? I haven't had a birth certificate in 10 years. What? A- now you're making me draw through a wall just to get something real simple now. That's more challenging. Much, much more challenging now. All of a sudden, now, okay? Why do I have to go through barriers to get something simple?
1: To the average American, obtaining an ID may not seem difficult or inaccessible, but for Mike and thousands of other previously incarcerated individuals, acquiring a government-issued ID is a major obstacle that hinders everything from finding a job, applying for housing, and paying parole. Frequently, individuals will enter the prison system with identification, and due to the timing of their sentence, or the misplacement of their property, will leave the prison system without that same identification. In other cases, individuals may enter the prison system having never owned a government-issued ID in the first place. Going further into the difficulties of finding work after serving time in prison, Mike asserts that even the concept of employment is skewed with a record.
2: Now define employment, You, one would have to, unfortunately, because of your background, because of no you actually heard of you, because lock, I've been locked up for quite a while, I had to take the easiest job. That's a little disappointing, because on, on several accounts. I would have loved to see the Department of Corrections come up with a, a way where they could re-educate us as a tool. you got to, uh, uh, just take a knife, for example. A knife gets dull, we sharpen it, we use it again. So why not do the same thing with uh with human beings who become who come out of a, who are ready to come out of a conservation or during well, their conservation, why can I why can't I not sharpen them as a, as you would a knife to to reuse as a tool? If if there was such a program for re entry, right after someone comes out, you would have an opportunity to either get to to, read, to get some kind of education to become re Quick education where he can be retooled real quick, let's say a fork up operator, maybe do brickmaking or whatever. Something would be real quick that would get him back on his feet, and then later on he could pursue something different. That's what I think that the reentry program should be looking at.
1: The humanity that is oftentimes stripped from people with criminal records is continually illuminated throughout Mike's story. The concept of retooling that Mike shares highlights the harsh ostracism individuals who are formerly incarcerated face. Both in and out of prison, the Council of State Government's Justice Center claims housing and employment, two important components of successful reentry, are nearly impossible to obtain without identification. Even this notion of reentry creates an outlook that people who are previously incarcerated are devalued the moment they enter the prison system; that these individuals are no longer a part of society and therefore have to re-enter it. After serving their time. But if reentry is in fact the expectation for individuals who are previously incarcerated, consider for a moment how barriers, such as obtaining a government issued ID, inhibit people with criminal records from a successful reentry process. Similar to Mike's story, David expands on the obstacles of requiring identification, as well as detailing his own prison experience.
3: Never give up, no matter what. Continue to seek to be a better person. Find your faith in your Lord and Jesus Christ and um, continue to strive to do the best that you can.
1: This is David. David is originally from Sierra Vista, Arizona and introduces himself as a proud Native American Yaqui Indian. Noting the importance of programs like Soteria, David stresses how interwoven his struggles of landing a job and paying parole are with securing identification.
3: Thanks to Soteria, things have been progressing a lot better, and I've had opportunities. But for some individual who doesn't have a place like this, it would be nearly impossible. Um, one issue i'm I've been having is obtaining an ID or obtaining a social security card or obtaining a birth certificate cuz I can't have one without the other it's a it's a loop I can't have a social security card without an ID I can't get an ID without a social security card and I can't get my birth certificate without either one um so it's been it's been extremely difficult I can't pay my dues for my parole without a job I can't get a job without a social security card and ID
1: as an organization Soteria helps to provide men who have been previously incarcerated with both long and short-term support. Just like David mentions, Soteria assists participants in their efforts to obtain government-issued identification. Soteria also offers transitional housing, transportation, clothing and food, full-time employment, alcohol and drug counseling, educational and technical training, and financial literacy classes for their participants. In contrast to the supportive community of Zoteria, David describes his time spent in prison as an isolating environment, driven by fear.
3: It's terrible. It's dehumanizing. its It takes away everything. You have no means to provide for yourself. You are taken away from the things that are most important to you. Your children, your family, your friends you take advantage or you take you you neglect the things the small things like taking a walk or walking to the to the refrigerator and getting something out getting a drink um going to a restaurant you you're stuck behind these walls with people who have done some terrible things and some and not some but probably the majority of these people a lot of people don't want to change so a lot of people's conception about some people may not be wrong, but about everyone it is. Um, so we're, when you're stuck in a prison and people are running around stabbing people and they're beating people up and throwing people off the top tier, you have nowhere to go. You're in there with them and, and uh, the officers ain't going to do anything to save you. They're locked outside the ba- outside the dorm waiting for backup, which could take a while.
1: Terrible. Dehumanizing. Stuck. David's words identify the intricacy of society's initial impression of people who were previously incarcerated. A lot of people's conception about some people may not be wrong, but about everyone? It is. It is practically human nature to categorize people into different groups. Rooting from this tendency of categorization stems the underlying issue of generalizing particular groups, rather than recognizing the complexities of individuals within these groups. David outlines this by separating, in his words, some people from everyone. In response to the question, what would you change about the U.S. prison system, David notes two components that played a role in the violent atmosphere he endured while incarcerated, weapons and security.
3: The access the inmates have to these weapons the security the amount of security they have they put one officer that's very minutely trained in handling these type of situations and they put them in a dorm with 300 plus inmates so if something goes down that one person couldn't do anything to help the situation anyhow
1: According to Don Hummer, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Pennsylvania State University, correctional facilities that experience higher than average rates of violence and disorder are also characterized by poor management and or a negative organizational culture. This is explicitly seen through David's account of limited officer security and inmate brutality. In relation to David's degrading and alienating experience in prison, Ricky shares his personal story of character misjudgment, dehumanization, and correctional officer neglect.
4: What people don't understand is that people can't change. It don't make no difference what they done did or go to jail, how much time they done did. If if you're given equal opportunity, they can't change.
1: This is Ricky. A native of Spartanburg, South Carolina, Ricky was charged for murder at 19 years old. Having been involved with and influenced by an older, perilous crowd in his youth, Ricky emphasizes the distinction between a bad person and a bad decision.
4: People see you. They know you've been in jail. I the last time I went to jail was I did 11 years on a violation, and they committed a no crime. People see you. They know you've been in jail. They do matter to figure you're a bad person. They don't know you. They hear somebody say, he been to the jail. They do matter to think you're a bad person, or a killer,
5: or something.
1: When asked if he thought people knew the difference between a violent offender and a nonviolent offender, Ricky notes that society's definition of violent is not the same as his own.
4: What's the difference? You know, uh, what, they, what they consider violent is not violent. You know, a person get busted with drugs, and they classify him as being violent. A person kills somebody with a gun, they classify him as being violent. If you do the crime more than one time, they consider you violent.
1: Truth be told, society's definition of violent is not even the same on a broad-based scale. The Justice Policy Institute explains that violent offenses are categorized from place to place. An act may be defined as a violent crime in one place. And as a nonviolent crime somewhere else. The law in a particular jurisdiction may define something as a nonviolent crime, but a corrections department may define the same behavior differently. Because the context and the location matter, Ricky is valid in his disregard of a clear difference. When describing his time in prison, Ricky recalls the experience as being plagued by distrust. It
4: was hell. You know, like myself. I had to chain myself shut at night when I go to bed, you know. I tame myself in the room because people go over there, you know. You can't trust. You can't. You, you trust no one. You in prison with a bunch of violent people. They don't care nothing about nothing but yourself. You had. To, I had to learn how to take care myself. Just try to stand a deal. Try to do what's right because. Being in jail is like a a caged-up animal. You know what I mean? I'm an animal. You you can't go nowhere. You can't do nothing.
1: Trust no one. Being in jail is like a caged-up animal. These are not easy sentiments to sit with, but listening to these stories is essential in shaping a greater understanding of what people touched by the criminal justice system endure in prison. Ricky continues his recollection of incarceration by sharing what he wishes would change within the US prison system.
4: You know, when they have an officer to work with the Department of Correction, especially, they need to do a background check. A better background check. It should be a way to weed bad peeps out. They had a killer. They killed seven guys in the Department of Correction. And then they went and locked up fourteen correction officers. They was doing wrong. They didn't have a forty-four officers working at the day that these fourteen guys got killed. Forty-four officers watching over fifteen hundred inmates. You know, they need to give an inmate something to do. You lock a man up, he ain't got nothing to do he gonna find something to do. He gonna find something negative to do. They got to find some classes for them guys. he got to find some work for them fellows to make them feel important. You know, we send this in the cell, I mean, in the dorm, day in and day out. Those guys, they figured out how to make a key. They make them out of trade.
1: In Ricky's case, His particular prison environment did not include programs, classes, or work, but did include feelings of disregard and abandonment. The belittlement and violence Ricky faced while incarcerated were also aspects highlighted by Frederick's account of his time in prison.
6: You might think, you know, you hard and this, and the third, and you know prison is just another place, it's a vacation spot, but no it's not. I mean, it's a place where it's a possibility, you can lose your life.
1: This is Frederick. Frederick grew up in Edgefield, South Carolina, and struggled with a cocaine addiction that started when he was around 20 years old. Because of his using tendencies, Frederick was in and out of prison from 2000 to 2015. Now sober, Frederick shares his life story, starting with stereotypical misconceptions of formerly incarcerated individuals.
6: That they are going to continue to be a criminal, that they're going to do what they've done, or even worse, you know, once they get out, that they're not capable of being a successful individual in society. And being that they're stereotyped that the individuals that were previously incarcerated or the to citizens, as we prefer to call them, they tend to implement that stereotype and just and continue to do crime and, you know, do the things that the people expect of them, and that a lot of people don't think that guys or women that have been in prison can actually come out and be functioning citizens.
1: When asked his stance on people's understanding of violent versus nonviolent offenders, Frederick expressed doubt that people are even considering the distinction when approaching individuals with criminal records.
6: I mean, I have came in contact with a lot of people that really don't even know the difference. I mean, they look at it, you've been to prison, you, I mean, you did something drastic, you know, they're not looking at, you know, the severity or either the type of crime that you committed. And they tend to think that you're a threat or you're a danger to, you know, other, other people. So, yeah, I think people look at you like that, like you're a threat. They don't really categorize you, the type of crime you do.
1: Working at a restaurant in Greenville, Frederick handles custodial tasks, dishwashing, and food preparation. When detailing his employment, Frederick mentions the misconceptions that followed him into his position as a result of his record.
6: At first, it seemed like you know my employer was leery on hiring an ex-felon because he had. I, I think I'm the first one that really came out of prison that's working there, and it's a family business. That's working there for him, but you know a lot of people got a little baggage but um I'm the first one that he hired that came out of prison to my understanding, and um, I did not live up to the stereotype that you know people the conception that people had of people going out of prison, so it was it's okay
1: everyone has baggage, but not everyone has the privilege to live a life uninhibited by that baggage, as we continue to hear criminal records are extremely limiting, which leads to the despondency of previously incarcerated individuals. In turn, rates of recidivism, meaning the tendency of previously incarcerated individuals to reoffend after leaving prison, increase, and society continues to stigmatize individuals touched by the criminal justice system rather than support them. Frederick believes that one way to set previously incarcerated individuals up for success could be removing questions of prior imprisonment from job applications?
6: Um, I think that, like, um, really, like, the question on applications about have you been proven and that really, right there, that could really take your application and put it on the side. So I think that should be really put off or taken off completely and let the individual's performance Show and then if they want to ask that question later, then you know it could be an option then. But you know, like they're trying to do that now, so I mean that that would be a great thing to do. That would help a lot of individuals that's trying to get work, possibly get work, because you know, a lot of organizations, and a lot of companies, they will not hire individuals with um any type of record. What a problem that I found with it was that I was trying to get into the medical field. I got out of prison. I went to school. And I was going, um, taking classes for them to be in some part of the hospital and whatnot. And at that particular time, that was like in 2003, 2004, I wasn't aware that they don't hire people with a record. And that was so discouraging. I quit school. I just quit. I owe them now. So I, I mean, I quit. But other than that, I think that that would really help a lot of individuals, you know, give them some type of hope that, there's, you know, they could get out and do something. I mean, all returning citizens aren't the same. They, uh, some people really want to come out here and do stuff, but, you know, opportunities are limited to the ones with the record.
1: Shifting gears to describe his time in prison, Frederick remarks the impact of drugs on people within the institution.
6: It was it was scary. Um, It was stressful um let me see it had me seeking i mean i was just seeking for a way to get out of the area i mean it was just it was horrifying to be honest i mean i saw fights i saw stabbings i seen people smoking k2 spice and their reaction to that was it was scary i mean they actually look at you and if you look at them they think you want to you're doing, trying to do something to them. So i didn't really know how to act around those people i didn't i didn't i just didn't know i mean i I I even got robbed. They took all my location, <laughs> all this, that, that stuff. It was terrible.
1: Synthetic cannabinoids, the official label of K2 or Spice, are defined by the National Institute on Drug Abuse as human-made mind-altering chemicals that are either sprayed on dried, shredded plant material so they can be smoked or sold as liquids to be vaporized and inhaled in e-cigarettes and other devices. Following his recollection of the prevalence of drugs during his time in prison, Frederick returns to explaining the violence he observed in the system.
6: You know, you're in such a narrow, I mean, a small space that, you know, people really, if, if one person don't like you, they convince a lot of other people not to like you, and then they could either, they could set you up, you go, go lock up, or they could either gang, get, beat you up, or whatever else, you know, stab you, kill you, for for no reason at all, something petty something that we might think is real pay a pack of 69-cent cookies or 50-cent soda or a bar of state soap, sometimes people will want to kill you about that. It's ridiculous. What that At the institution I was at, that's how they were down there with, you know, those those young people they want to kill and stuff over state soaps, people walking around here with black eyes, because they owe a person $5. You know, that in the penitentiary, that's a lot of money. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of things in there. I mean, that's not nothing I wish upon no one. I try to explain it to some of the younger people I know that's constantly getting in trouble. At least I did, you know, when I was around them back in my hometown. I used to try to explain to them that's not where you want to go. I mean, the things that you're doing out here and getting away with, you don't have the people that will, you know, pull you back or try to get in the middle of it to stop stuff, you know, stuff like that. You don't have that there. They're gonna let you fight it on out and you know you gotta do what you got to do. And if you're not you, if you're not built for that life, you're not gonna survive. And if you do survive, you're gonna come out lacking an hour, you know, something something gonna be wrong with you.
1: The distinction Frederick makes between fights outside of prison versus fights inside a prison illuminates the every man for himself environment within the prison system. As we have heard from Ricky and Frederick, oftentimes prison atmospheres can be filled with territorial-like disputes. Adam expands on this notion that incarcerated living is an adjustment, especially in terms of communication and community.
5: It kind of reminded me of being like a dog, like in a dog cage, I guess. Like we were all just dogs locked up in cages trying to protect like our little patch of land or something. Like Like if you got too close to somebody, they would growl.
1: This is Adam. Adam was born in Atlanta, but often moved around to other cities, spending his early life in foster care. Adam has a creative and imaginative mind, finding joy in woodworking jobs and the arts. When asked to reflect on the most difficult transition since leaving prison, Adam notes that incarcerated living involved little responsibility, while life outside of incarceration demands that responsibility daily.
5: Hardest thing, I think, has just been getting, like, back into the routine of things. Um, in jail, everything was just given to you. Like, you could stay in bed all holiday if you wanted to. Like, your meals were given to you. So, just, like, getting back into the routine of things, finding a job.
1: Connecting the community he experienced in prison with a community he encountered in foster care, Adam considers the two to be simultaneously similar and distinct.
5: I feel like I was a little bit in a, a different situation like most people. Like I, um, when I got locked up, I was in a very bad place in my life. So I'm not going to say that I enjoyed it, but I got to the point where I was comfortable like being there, I guess. Luckily, like I, I'm not going to say I was used to it all, but I, I did grow up in um, a group home when I was younger. So I was kind of used to the lifestyle a little bit, but not really certain things like you Certain things, I guess, you just can't prepare for, I guess.
1: Breaking down the contrast of living inside and outside of prison, Adam acknowledges that it took some time to adjust to incarceration.
5: There were some days where it was just, like, it was just overwhelming because you, you just see a lot of things, a lot of different fights, people, like, starting to get killed. I feel like I learned, like, a different level of respect, I guess. I like, guess certain things that, it's a different world inside of there. Like, it's certain things that you don't do. Like, you, it's certain things that you don't say. It's just a a whole different world than, like, living, like, on the outside versus living in there. But once you, I guess, adjust all that, like, learn, sometimes you might learn the wrong, the hard way, I guess. Um, It becomes easier, but it's still, it's still kind of hard. But I got, I did get to the point where I became just comfortable in there. So coming back out, like, into the real world, like, it was just a little bit, just a little bit hard for me, because I was just dealing with, like, a lot of stuff from growing up and everything, like, emotional aspects, it was a little bit hard, I guess.
1: Mai Fernandez, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, states more often than not, an individual who commits an illegal act will also have experienced past trauma. While Adam briefly touches on the stuff he faced while growing up and the emotional implications of that stuff, Adam is really glossing over his own trauma and adverse childhood experiences. Adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, are defined by the Child Welfare Information Gateway as traumatic events occurring before age 18, including all types of abuse and neglect. The CDC reports that the more ACEs a person experiences, the greater their risk of facing negative outcomes in adulthood becomes. These negative outcomes range anywhere from imprisonment or substance abuse to poor physical and mental health. Returning to the contrast of life in and out of prison, Adam notes that communication is key when adjusting to communal living while incarcerated.
5: It's just communication, like you you just have to learn how to communicate back there. Like it's certain things you just don't say like you I like to joke around a lot, and I learned that you can't really joke around too much when you're back there. Like, you really have to watch what you say around people because you never know what they've been through or things that they've seen. And, like, anything that you say can be taken in offense, so you kind of have to watch what you say around anybody. After a while, I would say after, like, eight months, like, I um, I guess I started to um gain, I guess, respect. This is the right term for it. So, things kind of lighten up a little bit, but you still have to be careful and try it lightly, because you never know who's trying to take advantage of you or who's trying to i don't know you never know anybody's ulterior motive, I guess
1: When asked what he would change about America's prison system, Adam's answer echoes Mike's desire for the retooling of incarcerated individuals and Ricky's wish for access to productive programming while imprisoned.
5: One thing I would change is um. I wish that everybody was working inside there, rather than just sitting around wasting their time. There's a lot of guys with um a lot of potential in there that I saw, and they're just wasting a year, two years, three years, or however however many years of their life just sitting around, just doing nothing. I know for the past year, I, would, I would pretty much just wasted a lot of my time. Like I did find things to do here and there. I had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to pray, a lot of time to get to know myself a little better. But I felt as if If I was working, like, it could have made things just a little bit better. I could have been somewhat productive, I guess.
1: While Adam is not the only individual whose prison experience was shaped by the lack of programs available for inmates, it's important to note that not all prison facilities are created equally. In Kevin's case, his prison experience included both classes and work opportunities.
0: I'm worthy of the respect that society should give an individual who's returning back into society, back into the mainstream. I'm worthy of that respect. And I demand it based upon my character. I demand it based upon the love that I have of serving, the love that I have of giving. Truly believe I deserve it. This is Kevin.
1: Kevin is the last of our Soteria interview participants. Kevin is from Dillon, South Carolina, and is working on completing school to become a barber. When asked about misconceptions of individuals who have been previously incarcerated, Kevin asserts that these misunderstandings stem from the media's framing of prisons.
0: The demonization of the media, this Hollywood thing about prisons being just dis- altogether banned all out. H-E-L-L, right? And it's, it's it's actually not. It's a place where people go who've made mistakes in society. So in the thing of demonizing people, denigrating people, making people look like they're other than what they are, they're human beings who've made mistakes. That's not to say that there aren't some people who deserve to be incarcerated. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. But the thing is, it's this right here. I don't think that People should be made to look like monsters when, in reality, they might may not be a monster. They may just be, again, human beings who've made a mistake and simply are doing things as a result of having made their mistakes to correct themselves. A fall in the pit should always be a gain in the wit. You make a mistake, you should always try to learn from your mistake. All praises do. So, I think that's the main thing that People are just made out to be monsters. And we're not monsters. People who've been incarcerated are not monsters. human beings again.
1: Expanding on the nature of prison life, Kevin shares how his incarceration experience differs from his understanding of the media's frame and portrayal of the system.
0: Prison is no fairy tale. I'll say that from the gate. There is no fairy tale. So there are things that happen in prison that, are real based upon what the media has said. There are things that are real, but I think they turn it into like a caricature, a grossly disproportionate picture of what it actually is to the point it almost makes it seem like it's a horror story. In reality, you have schools in the prison. You have medical facilities inside of the prison. You have trades inside of the prison system. This does not appear to be a horror story. If you have trades there, where people can learn how to learn to um, learn things, skills that can help them to be successful citizens. That's not a, that's not a horror story. You have um, medical facilities there. They're not the best of medical. They're not the best of doctors. However, you have people who are in the medical profession there that truly care. And they don't mind teaching you if you ask them a question. They don't mind helping you out. They really do not mind. So you have people there. You have correctional officers who are excellent people just striving to make a living. This is where they're working. And we'll help you. It has been my experience that I've had officers along the way to give me some of the greatest encouragement I've ever received in my life. Just being everyday good human beings. That's how it is in the prison. Get to know the staff. Get to know the different stories and what led people to where they're at. Then you'll find out prison is not really like what the media portrays it to be. Now, it can get ugly because you have so many different things that are going on back there. But I've seen guys take care of their entire families. I've seen guys pay for funerals. I've seen guys send their children to college. So I've seen goods I've seen bads overall I think that if there were more programs that are designed to not um religious catechism not 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 that indoctrinating people I think that if we could put something inside of the prison system that would teach people how to think as opposed to what to think then the world would be a lot better off and there would be less prisons that's what I think Teaching people how to think, how to be free thinkers, as opposed to them just going with the mainstream of what everybody else say. Because as long as we're going by what everybody else say, when we think we're going west, we'll be going east. And when we think we're going east, we'll be going west.
1: (laughs) While Kevin's testimony of trades and opportunities for incarcerated individuals contrasts the experiences of Mike, Ricky, and Adam, it spotlights the spectrum of America's prisons. Differing in security levels, state versus federal status, and funding, each prison is unique in its operation and treatment of incarcerated individuals. However, even with programming available, Kevin does mention the distinction between programs that teach people what to think versus programs that teach people how to think. Continuing to speak on how he believes the prison system could change, Kevin also touches on how authority should be managed by correctional officers. I think
0: that, again, you have officers who are human beings in their approach to dealing with people who are incarcerated and don't just go by the um, the stain that the are demonizing. They, they do, who don't just go by that. They come in, do their jobs, and are human beings in doing their jobs, as opposed to others who will come on the job and throw on a mask and they're totally different people than what they were when they were out in society before they came in. So if we could get people to to come in there who would be human and not masked or not um, being something other than who they truly, truly are in heart, then I think the prison system would actually run a, little, a lot more smoother. Now, there are some things that they may that would definitely have to be addressed in relations to how the prison system is ran because you'll find different abuses happening where you'll find, um, abuse of authority, abuse of force. You'll find those things in the prison system where they don't have to go to the extent that they're going to in order to maintain the order so we could change that because they. you'll find people that are working in the Department of Correction and they say, they'll say according to, just because they're an authoritative figure and they're in an authoritative position, you have to go according to what they say. What they say is the ultimate answer for everything and that's just not how the world works. If the, if the world worked that way, according to what you say being right all the time, then we wouldn't have remedies for issues that uh, we have to deal with, that, that we will held by the law, but we wouldn't have issues that we could remedy. The court wouldn't have a remedying system. So, think yeah, that's, thing. that's just what I think.
1: When reflecting on each of these men's stories, it's certainly evident that there are similarities within their prison experiences. Themes of violence, neglect, and dehumanization are present, as well as multiple accounts of character misjudgment and systemic barriers. Soteria's efforts to aid and empower these six men and other previously incarcerated individuals in their transition after prison showcase the impact of positive environments on individuals touched by their criminal justice system. While it is important to recognize the substantial work of Soteria and the commonalities within the life stories of these men, it is just as crucial to acknowledge the individuality of Mike, of David, of Ricky, of Frederick, of Adam, and of Kevin. Not one of their stories is the same. Not one of their stories is without human imperfection and complexity. Each of these individuals showcase not only the intricacies of Mike, David, Ricky, Frederick, Adam, and Kevin, but also the intricacies of the injustices within the American prison system. In order to combat these injustices, it is essential to first listen to the individuals whose lives have been adversely shaped by these inequities. But don't stop there. Learn from their stories. Ask yourself, which parts of these stories stand out to you? Which parts move you? From your answers to these questions, find your own call to action. Is it advocating for educational programs in prison? Is it researching how your state offers assistance for previously incarcerated individuals seeking to obtain an ID? Is it supporting existing organizations like Soteria that are assisting in the growth and prosperity of previously incarcerated individuals? Or is it making the commitment to enhance your own understanding of the criminal justice system and the individuals the system impacts? Just as Kevin says in the beginning of this podcast, Everybody has something to offer. Everybody has something to give. So why not learn their story?